Hi, I'm Jayant Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. After a fairly long interval in this podcast, we're speaking once again about COVID-19 in India. And that's because over the weekend, there was some significant news in the form of a new modelling study by a seven-member expert panel that the government constituted to chart the course of the pandemic and its future. The headline conclusions of the report, as many of you must have read by now, is that the committee concluded that India has passed its COVID-19 peak. That happened sometime in September. And if current trends continue, there will be minimal cases by February. In other words, the report suggests that the pandemic can be brought under control by that time. So we're going to explore those conclusions made by the committee in this episode. Look at whether there is indeed reason for optimism or if there are factors that we still need to keep a very close watch on that could easily derail some of the progress the country has made in the last few weeks. As I record this, the Prime Minister this evening is addressing the nation with a message that while the lockdowns are over, the virus still hasn't gone anywhere. So despite some positive trends, it's clear that nobody should be easing up their guard just yet. To get into this in more detail, my guest today is Gautam Menon. He is a professor of physics and biology at Ashoka University. And he has a keen interest in the modelling of infectious diseases and its implications for public policy. Since pretty much the start of the epidemic in India, he has been part of a prominent group of Indian scientists who have come up with detailed mathematical modelling on the progression of COVID-19 in India. And it's those insights that we will draw on in our conversation today. Gautam Menon, thank you for joining us on the InFocus podcast again. It's been a while since we spoke and um, that's also because we've kind of taken a break from covering COVID on this podcast for a while. But, um, you know, there have been some important news events over the past few days. And uh, we're back to covering it. And we're very glad to have you back with us today. Thank you, Jen. Very good to be back. Right. So um, the big news, of course, it came over the weekend was that um, the government had constituted this expert panel. And their major conclusion was that um, the peak of COVID is over. And I think they've said that um, with a rider that if precautionary measures continue, which we will get to, they say that uh, it can be controlled by early next year. That's early February. So, of course, um, parallelly over the past, for most of this year, you and a group of prominent Indian scientists have been doing a lot of modeling, a lot of running the numbers on the progression of the disease in India. Um, so, so what are your thoughts, firstly, on the panel's conclusions? I think overall, I'd be positive about them. You can use certainly there has been a peak and a decline that has now sustained for about close to three weeks, and that's certainly significant. The best estimates that the panel made is about 400, 400 million people have already been infected up to now. We, I would probably be a little more conservative than that, a number more like 300 million or 250 million, maybe a better ballpark estimate. But that certainly does indicate that the disease has spread a fair amount within the Indian population, and its progress from now on will be slower, precisely for that reason. So I think there is reason for some cautious optimism in the sense that I think the pandemic in the major cities of India, such as Delhi, Bombay, Chennai, Bangalore, etc., is on its way downward. And I think that that is a positive. 
The slight negative is there are large areas of the country in which we have not seen such large numbers or large fractions of cases. And it's there that the focus will actually shift. Hopefully, because this is a countryside, people are there in less density. And the progress of the disease should be slower in those regions and therefore more controllable, one hopes. So my bottom line would be, I think that this is a positive. I think the fact that it is sustained for about three weeks is certainly a positive. We need to be very careful going forward because now the festival season is opening up. And that's where the main challenges will lie. Right. Um, so, yeah, so you are talking basically about a period of three weeks in your observation that, uh, you know, things have been somewhat, uh, the, the trend has been reversed, would you say? Yes. So the trend is certainly going down and sort of showing no trace of going up for these past three weeks. And whether this will sustain or not is, is, is a question, of course, that all of us are asking. So the way to answer that is, again, what level of people in the Indian population are infected? Are we looking at 20% or 30% infected, or is it a number that is smaller than that? Based on what we know about how disease is spread, by the time you get to about 30 to 40% of people infected, that's when the disease will begin to turn down. More people are getting infected, but you're not seeing larger and larger numbers every day. They're just sort of on the way down, which is really what we are seeing at the moment. So it's very crucial, that particular estimate, how many people are yet to be infected in the population and how fast is it going to spread among that fraction of people who still remain susceptible. So I think the best estimate that the committee made and what we also agree with is that we are past that little peak. And now what will happen will happen at a slower rate unless there is some sudden burst of, of some increase because we have not been careful enough while reopening, especially in the context of the festival season. Yeah, I just want to come to that uh, because, look, um, it does seem, you know, um, we both uh, live in major cities. I live in Chennai. Uh, you're in Delhi, though, a little bit far away. Uh, if you do go to a major city now, it, it does appear that things are kind of largely back to normal uh, in the sense that people are out and about. And you did mention the, the festive season and the, the fact that, um, you know, uh, Diwali, for instance, might become, uh, I hope not, but it, there is potential for it to be a kind of a multiplier event. Um, is there, is there kind of, can that kind of be factored into the model? Um, if, if, if suddenly people just drop all safety restrictions? No, that certainly um, can. That certainly can. In fact, we did that for the Delhi. We have a modeling exercise for Delhi where we show how the peak and the decline from the peak was, was actually very fit, well fit by the model. And then we examined what would happen if Delhi opened up. And you can see the numbers go back up. In fact, that was our anticipation of the second peak in Delhi, which actually happened. So we showed that if you if you did relax your vigilance at that point, so this is around the 1st of August, between the 1st and the 10th of August, I think, that you would see the numbers go back up, which they actually did. For India, we've been saying, I think our best estimate that we made several months ago was that you would see the Indian peak at the end of August. It's been shifted a little bit. The middle of September is, I think, the current data. So the current model sort of shows that the peak is around the 15th of, of September. But of course, they have access to much, much more recent data. So it's possible to do a better fit with that. Right. Um, so just to talk about percentages again, you said that um, what we know about the disease is that when 30 to 40 percent of people, you know, become infected, that's when the disease should sort of slow down a bit. Um, is that, is, are we in a sense, um, but, but does the data suggest that that's not the case, that, you know, those numbers aren't really telling? I suspect that the data is really data that is from the cities at the moment, because that's where the, the brunt of the epidemic has struck us. And I think it's, it's India is a sort of patchwork with sort of very high numbers of fractions of people being infected in the cities, probably 50 to 60% of them in, in Bombay and about maybe about 40, 30 to 40% in Delhi. 
But if you look at sort of remote districts of India where it has not penetrated, that number could be as low as 5 to 10 percent. I mean, 6 percent was the estimate that the ICMR made from, from about a month ago in terms of the number of the, the fraction of people who already had the disease in about 70 districts of India, excluding the urban areas. So I think that is a problem that really the big peak is coming from the urban areas, whereas the disease has not spread enough into the more rural areas. And that's where there is additional, in a sense, fodder for the disease to spread. Yeah. Um, and and along with that, is there a concern that um, in, in some of the smaller rural areas, it's, it's is, it, is that a concern that maybe reporting is not as efficient as in the cities? That certainly is a very serious concern. At least in the cities, we have some estimate for, for example, the undercounting of, of, of mortality associated with COVID-19 or the, the number of people who required hospitalization or ICU beds or oxygen, etc. We had some idea. Once the disease moves into areas that are not well served medically, then it becomes far more difficult to keep track of how it's spreading. So it is likely to spread very subtly through the population. And we will not know about it because simply we don't have enough information about the state of health and the state of the population in more remote areas of India, as we do in comparison when we talk about the city. Right. Um, so one of the one of the expert panel's uh, recommendations, um, you know, right up top is that um, is that it felt, the committee the committee felt that um, imposing any more lockdowns is not actually feasible unless I think the, the rider was that unless um, a, a certain area felt that the health system was getting overwhelmed. Um, would you agree with that assessment? Do you think that um, you know we're done with that uh, lockdown strategy now going forward? Well, I would agree completely. I think, in fact, I've been saying this for several for several weeks to months that the large scale lockdowns at the level of the full country or even a full state don't make sense. Perhaps it made sense in a limited way in the first lockdown that India did, because that was the time when you wanted to control the movement of people, the spreading of the disease outside the points where it had already reached, control the people coming in from outside into India, because they were sources of, of, of additional disease seeding within the population. But certainly now, I think it's a bad strategy. And as far as possible, any lockdown should be for as limited time as possible and as small scale, as micro, micro scale as you can possibly make it. Right. Um, and even in the eventuality that, say, um, during this festive season, you know, cases start going up. So, so in your opinion, a lockdown still wouldn't be like a good solution to that. I, I should I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I don't think one should rule down, rule out public sector health strategies that may be required at some time because we simply don't know what the levels of infection might be. If it turns out that the, that the issue is just that public health services are getting overwhelmed in a particular with far more patients requiring intensive care then under normal circumstances where the disease is slowly spreading through the population, then I think more aggressive measures might be required. And so I don't think one should rule out the, ne the necessity for lockdowns in certain circumstances. It's just that they're not, they, should, they should be fairly low down on the list of options that a public health manager should take. Right. Um, so I'm going to take you a little bit back now. I think the last time that we spoke, um, you know, I think our conversation was more generally about how uh, mathematical modeling can help us understand the spread of an epidemic like this. Um, but we did sort of speak about the numbers in in a in a broad way. I think that was back in maybe uh, maybe May or June, and that was when um, you were also putting together this group of scientists uh, that uh, was you know looking at the numbers and coming up with uh, with modeling. Um, so. You know, just just going back from say uh, the middle of the year, uh, June till now, um, what would you say about how the disease has progressed? And maybe we can get into some detail about you know the number of cases and maybe mortality rate and those kinds of things. 
It's a very, very broad picture. I think the increase in the number of cases in India has been quite slow. And I would attribute that to the, certainly the initial lockdown. As well as very stringent measures, including increases, increasing number of people who wear masks, increasing care and taking to, in, you know, in sort of uh, ensuring that people didn't go out much. But now, you know, after, even though it has been increasing, that rate has been slow compared, for example, to the, to Italy or to the US or to the UK. That's been a positive, certainly. What we've realized in our modeling is that modeling India as one big whole doesn't make sense anymore. And as far as possible, you really need to model India at the level of the districts, if not even smaller regions. We've done models for Bombay, for Delhi, for, for, uh, for Bangalore and different districts in Karnataka. For all of these, these, all of these data tell a different story. And the problems in each of these places are different. In some, you may really get a suspicion that there's an undercounting of the number of deaths, for example, which is a very a crucial input in our model. In other places, there doesn't seem to be so much of, a, of an issue. You can, you can see how the discrepancy between the number of cases that ought to be there and the number of cases that you're actually testing and finding is narrowing a little bit, indicating that we're doing a better job of identifying cases. And that's certainly a positive. So these are things that modeling can tell you. And I think in the future, it's going to be increasingly important. We need to figure out what are the relevant strategies to what extent is, can mask wearing substitute for regular testing? What levels should you be testing in order to get an idea of, where, of how the disease is spreading through the population? It's going to be very important when we decide the allocation of vaccine. Who do you prioritize in terms of vaccine? And all of these questions will come to the fore because modeling is really the only way you have of trying to understand what is going to happen in the future, what's going to happen a week, two weeks, three weeks down the line. And for that to be useful, it really has to be as small a unit as possible. And our models currently are looking at India at the level of each district, the 740 odd districts that we have. And there, what usually the difficulty is that we don't have good enough data for most of those districts. It's only a few districts where we can trust the data enough to be able to put it into our models and run them forward and see what might happen. So I think one stress going forward should be a better coordination, a better release of the data that exists, a more, more attention being paid to all of the inputs that must go into a model to make that model believable and trustworthy. Right. Um, so, so one other thing that I wanted to ask is, um, what, what's the kind of major comparison points between India and say, um, say the US where, you know, COVID is, I, I think that's, US is the country where, <laughs> where the pandemic is still making a lot of headline news every day. Um, you know, partly because of the approach of the administration. Um, but just in terms of the progress of the disease, I mean, India and the US are now the countries reporting the highest numbers, but w what's the major point of, uh, you know, um, uh, divergence? So let me talk about the points of similarity. First of all, the US yeah. also saw a lot of cases initially in the city that spread very fast. So the initial increase in the US really came from New York and cities around there and then later, a little bit later on, on, on the west coast of the US. If you look at the US as a whole, you have actually not too many people have been infected. The best estimate from a few weeks ago was around 10%. And I think that would be a comparable number for India right now. If you look at all of India, maybe somewhere between 10 to 20% of them have 10 to 15 or 20%, let's say, have been infected so far, a comparable number to the US, but it's very inhomogeneous. Most of the infections in India have been in the city. They're slowly spreading out now towards the countryside. That's also true of the US. So these are the main points of similarities between these two countries. In fact, they may be more alike than we care to imagine. Points of difference. One point certainly is leadership. I think the right. US has been particularly unfortunate in having a leader who really seems to have no idea about the importance of public health and the importance of people who think independently about public health. As I think I said earlier on your program, the last time I came on, 
the one good, consistently good thing about India has been the fact that the messaging from the top, starting from the prime minister and starting to all government agencies, has been very consistent about the importance of masking, and the importance of distancing in all measures, etc. This has been a great positive. And, and you know, if you compare us to the other big countries which are democracies, if you look at Brazil, if you look at the US, if you look at the EU, etc., I think the Indian leadership has been very, very consistent on this particular point, and I'm very proud of that, in a sense. Right. Okay. Right. So I think we'll come now to, um, I, I wanted to spend some time on vaccines because I think, well, it, it is going to be, you know, sometime next, sometime early or, you know, hopefully in the middle of next year is when we're expecting some kind of movement to happen on vaccines. And as you mentioned, the question is, you know, the prioritization, who will get it first uh, in what is the time frame in which we can look at it being given to the whole population? Um, is that is that possible to model? And what have you already started on that? So that is something that we're working on with a bunch of collaborators. And I imagine there are other modeling exercises going on within government and outside it. Exactly looking at this question. So the question is, the sort of questions to answer is who is most vulnerable in terms, for example, should you vaccinate the elderly first because they have vulnerable population? Should you vaccinate people with comorbidities such as diabetes? Should you vaccinate healthcare workers? Should you vaccinate the people who are going to vaccinate other people? That certainly is a priority issue because they will be exposed to other people who carry the disease. What about questions of how do you distribute it in terms of regions that are as yet relatively pristine in terms of the entry of the, of the virus to those regions? They are low incidence. They do have not reported many cases compared to places that have reported a larger number of cases, for example, the city. Then there's a question of supply chain. How do you get vaccines efficiently from one place to the other? You may want to prioritize one particular region, but if it may be very hard to get vaccines to that region, that should that should somehow figure into the calculation, into the economics and the and the sort of the, the, the thinking that goes, the supply side thinking that, that goes into getting materials to where they're most needed. So this is a complicated question and it has many different parts to it. There's a part that's pure public health, there's a part that's economics, there's a part that's you know sociology. There's all of this comes into play when we think about this. So this is a question that is interesting us at the moment and many other people too. Right. So assuming that a vaccine does start rolling out, um, say, beginning or middle uh, next year, are we, are we looking at seeing, seeing the kind, I mean, what, is, what, what, what would uh, the end of the pandemic look like to you in terms of you know, how it declines? I suspect that at the rate that we're going, it's probably likely that most Indians, or at least at least 50% of Indians, will probably have had exposure to the infection by the time we even get to the vaccine. So right. at that point, it's not very clear, you know, whether how useful the vaccine will be. Hopefully, we've managed to protect the people who are, until then, who are in need of protection. Certainly, the elderly being them, being among them, people who are immunocompromised in some way being among them, and certainly they should then at that point be targeted because for most people it doesn't matter; they've already been infected and they will carry traces of that infection. What we don't really know is how long that protection lasts. If you do have protective immunity by acquiring the disease once, does it last for a year? Does it last for two years? Does it last for only six months? There are some reports now of a small number of people who have undergone reinfection. And that's a yeah. bit worrying because that suggests that, you know, catching the disease once doesn't guarantee that you won't catch it again, even as, you know, even just three or four months down the line. On the other hand, these numbers are still very small. And if it was at a sort of broader level, the coronaviruses of which the SARS-CoV-2 is an example, the one, the virus that causes COVID-19, these are seasonal. They, some of them cause a seasonal cold for sort of influenza and cold-like, uh, cold-like symptoms, actually. So, and they, you, you don't acquire permanent immunity to those. 
So it's somewhat likely that maybe the COVID-19 will become a disease like that. It will sort of sit within the population, just like sort of a regular cold. It will recur every year, and there is no long-term protection, except maybe with a vaccine. So we might have to get used to having a vaccine in intervals of a year, just as in principle we should with the influenza. So again, uh, just to come back to this point of you, you mentioned it, uh, the possibility of uh, reinfection, which we don't know what the interval is. Um, does that kind of negate the, the prospect of, um, you know, uh, herd immunity, which um, I think we've not been talking about for a while. I just read a report that uh, the Trump administration in the US is in some way endorsing this idea. Um, so does that complicate this whole idea of herd immunity? Oh, it absolutely complicates it because the whole idea behind herd immunity, herd immunity is actually used in the context of vaccines and the whole idea of using it in terms of getting a whole number of people infected so they don't catch it again is very new. And that's really sort of come to the fore only with the COVID-19 pandemic. But the technical use of the term herd immunity is to vaccinate a large number of people so that they have, they enable protection for those who have not been vaccinated. That's the original intent of this. But if your vaccination is not in any sense permanent and you have to keep it, keep giving it every year, if you can sustain the yearly, then that's fine. And if that, that vaccine is reasonably effective and protects at least about 60 to 80 percent of the people to whom it's given, then that's another way of ensuring the same end that you have a large number of people who are vaccinated protecting the smaller number who's not vaccinated. But certainly if you wanted to achieve herd immunity through infection alone, then this would go completely against that. Because this would say that, look, having it once, having had it once doesn't protect you in the long term. Right. So, um, you know, on the same on the same day that um, the, 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 the so just to get back to the expert committee uh, report again, um, on the same day that uh, this uh, committee presented um, uh, this report saying that the peak is uh, the peak is might well be over and we can get it under control by early next year. Uh, there was another sort of, um, well, not committee, but a press conference where there was this warning of a second wave. And I think we kind of spoke about that earlier. Um, does, that, does that seem likely? Uh, is there, uh, does that sort of factor into the models? So in the, in the model that was presented, in, in the model that they did, you can tweak parameters and make it look as though you know, there is a second wave, certainly. And is, in, is if the question is, uh, should we expect a second wave in India? The answer would be, it's somewhat likely that we will see a second wave associated with the festival season, in my opinion. Right. Because certainly in states like Bengal, and specifically Calcutta, which have not seen a sort of sharp increase in the number of cases that other cities such as Delhi and Bombay and Bangalore did. If one believes those numbers, there is still a large number of people there to be infected. Right now they're going out, they're visiting Puja Pandas, they're in close contact with each other. This is the time of you know, it, traditionally, this is a time of celebration, large crowds, shopping, etc., etc. It doesn't seem as though that fervor has dimmed in the light of COVID-19 sufficiently. Certainly, there, are, there is some amount of mask wearing, some amount of distancing, but whether that's whether that would be enough, you know, to sort of make sure that the cases don't rise by too much, is not very clear to me. So, I would actually keep my eyes very much on Bengal. I think it will be a test case for what might happen in North India a little later on when we get into the North Indian festival season. In there. And then we'll have to see what happens. But if there is an uptick in cases, it will most probably be associated with the festival season. And then, you know, we really don't know where it might go. It could even be a peak that surpasses the existing peak that we have. Because there are more people to be infected out there. And we have no, by no way reached, in a sense, the end in terms of the disease having gone through the population, not, found, not finding anyone more to infect. Right. 
so you know so would you sum up by saying you know there are reasons for optimism but we do have to keep an eye out for the festival season in particular and also on um, you know how how the disease is spreading in uh, rural india and in smaller towns and villages that's absolutely correct you put it very well there are reasons for optimism the peak that we've seen seems to be a clean peak another strong reason for optimism is that if you believe the numbers both up and bihar very populous indian states are not showing the sort of increases that one might have expected if if the if the disease was running rampant over there the other positive is that mortality in india has been low especially if you compare it to other countries like brazil in the us and so on this is a great positive for us and it's as yet unclear as to whether there may be some underlying biological factor that ensure that some other reason might that might be the case so i think what the committee said was completely right one has to be careful especially in the light of of, of the festival season if we manage to make it through that keeping our mask wearing keeping our distancing on then there is some hope that that will sustain for the time for that we need going forward to keep it down if we don't do that and as i said the likely points are going to be bengal in the festive season and later north india during the later diwali season we may see a rise in cases as a consequence of that and that may be even rival the current peak that we have and that would be my main worry right and just basically to end with just to uh, push you into a little bit, bit more detail uh, we've spoken about the committee's uh, conclusions uh, basically um, and you agree that there is reason for um, optimism though maybe cautious optimism um how, what what do you make of the kind of calculations and uh, that the committee actually did in in terms of the technical way in which they went about their study so i don't have a high opinion of the technical way in which they went about their study there is i think there are many many flaws with that model and i think the committee doesn't understand the level of epidemiological detail that other models currently incorporate so i would like to separate what the committee did with the paper because finally there are only three co-authors on the paper although the larger committee that went to this question of 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 epidemiology of covid-19 in india and made these recommendations that was they, all of them have signed on to those recommendations and they make sense but partly there seems to be have been a political exercise in the sense that the committee seemed to stress the fact that the lockdown managed to save a large number of lives that no additional cases were recorded due to migrant movement movement to migrant population the point is that we don't have the data or the analysis to speak that statement here and these are still very thorny and controversial issues and i would not trust this particular model to give us a final word on that Mm-hmm. uh got it i'm i'm glad we uh, got that point into at the end um yeah. but um thank you thank you for joining us today i think that was uh, it's really good to uh, speak about this after the break and <laughs> to get a perspective on what's going on right sure. now thank you thank you so much jan in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.